and welcome to Neurocurious, a podcast about all things brain, body, mind, and culture, not necessarily in that order. I'm Deborah Budding, joined by co-hosts Jamie Jones and Peggy Schaefer, and ooh, you guys are in for a treat today. We are joined by Sheena Henderson, a licensed marriage, <clears throat> I can't talk today, licensed marriage and family therapist and certified in developmental individual relationship, uh, DIR, mm-hmm. uh, level two. Uh, Mrs. Henderson obtained a BA in psychology, a master's degree in counseling psychology, and uh, is connected with the mental health community. Currently, she's employed in a supervisory role for a program that promotes clinic and home-based psychological services to adults, children, families, and couples. So, welcome, Sheena. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Hello. Welcome. I got a chance to listen to some of your um, other airings and you guys are doing a great job oh thank you thank you thank you i had the pleasure to meet sheena through another case we were working on a case together mm-hmm. and i thought oh yes like-minded <laughs> yes awesome <laughs> immediately yes. so i've been bugging her to come on and so it's finally worked out yes we got our schedules aligned uh-huh. that is the tricky thing well we're so glad you're here yeah. thank you so specifically, we're here to really talk about neurodiversity and intersectionality. Right. Um, Deb, do you want to get into a little bit about what that means for us? I mean, I think that term gets used, but I think it would be good for people to understand it a little bit. Yeah. Well, um, for what um, intersectionality is a term actually that was um, created by Kimberly Crenshaw uh, a number of years ago, and has to do with um, kind of the ways that areas of privilege intersect and ways that uh, areas of oppression intersect and ways that we can all try to be um, more thoughtful about kind of where we are in that matrix mm-hmm. and uh, and how we can work to support uh, and do kind of allyship work through um, with people in the community, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally don't refer to myself as an ally to people mm-hmm. because gross that's for other people to decide whether I'm an ally to them <laughs> um, but uh, but the the place of a neurodiversity within that is often very much neglected uh-huh. um, and one of the things we've talked about in terms of the um, especially with regard to Black Lives Matter movement and police shootings that, that a very high percentage of individuals killed by police have disabilities Uh right and um i think that the the place of disabilities within the larger conversation tends to be sort of lacking Uh and that the particular intersection of um disability and neurodiversity um with race and socioeconomic status i think gets left out a fair amount yeah absolutely yeah, I think that's a nice segue into, you know, some observations that you have, Sheena, in your own work okay. about what you, you experience and see, and then, you know, just kind of open our eyes more to things that we also see in our own practices, yeah. um, availability to services, lack of diagnosis, um, just education within the culture itself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, definitely, um, I attended a conference maybe about four years ago, and it was specifically about the lack of um, um, support that the um, uh, people of color receiving mental health services and um, having access to it, having the funds for it, having the time, the energy for it. Mm -hmm. um, These were areas that um, were overlooked for so long and it seems as if now finally they're starting to take a closer look at how can we really influence these groups of people how can we reach out into the community and be more of a support system for them um and it's definitely something that i also see in you know working with the clients um one big thing i think is resources time energy um uh for where i work now um i work for a private practice well Um, an independent agency and they send us out to the homes of these low-income families Um, they don't have transportation they barely you know have money for food let alone to take a bus twice a week for their child to receive therapy services so um, 
one big way that uh, really supported this, you know, reaching out into the community and helping them get the services that they need was to provide in-home therapy, which is not always uh, very cheap. And it's definitely not free. (laughs) And it's so much more effective. Ultimately, I mean, if you just think about the, the, the like ecological validity of it, right? Going and doing those, those behavioral interventions in the Mm -hmm. home Mm -hmm. makes more sense anyway. Absolutely. And I think that it speaks to the parents a little bit more on a different level. Absolutely. So, um, that's definitely something we're seeing in, um, working with these populations and, and also being able to speak their language. Yeah. Sometimes we get in there and we're a little clinical and we have to remember to turn it down a little bit Mm -hmm. and, you know, you know, sort of floor time, you know, (laughs) get on their level and speak the, you know, the way they can really connect with what you're trying to implement with their child, with their family, with the couple, um, and that's something that I think would make a huge difference. So, yeah, yeah that's a good point. Um, that, that reminded me, actually, we've been talking about um, DIR, floor time, mm-hmm. right? And, and it occurs to me that our listeners might not actually be familiar with what that is. Mm-hmm. So um, can you give us kind of the, the 101 introduction <laughs> to what sure. DIR, floor time is? Absolutely. So um, DIR, floor time, it's a basically an intervention. It means developmental individual relationship-based model. And um, the general idea is you um, want to establish um, the relationship is key. So um, because of that, they encourage parent participation and parent training is a huge component of the you know success rate or you know being able to see the progress of, of the, the um, client you're working with. Um, so it, it's that, um, so it's, um, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over my words. <laughs> uh, so developmental, so, um, we look at it on a scale of, well, they keep coming out with new levels, but generally it started off when I started in this area, it was, um, six developmental milestones and it basically outlined the, uh, perspective of, um, of your level of functionality, um, your level of uh, your ability to, you know, communicate or use words or um, express express yourself maybe um, um, in different ways or uh, have the connectedness or being able to understand the world around you. And uh, so it's scaled um, on a level of either one to six and, um, and that help you to kind of devise a treatment plan and approach a strategy to help you to work with the child or for me it's usually children so mm-hmm. help you to work with a child um uh and so it's it's really just meeting the child where they are following their lead um and there are some strategies however because i am more mental health i like to implement more mental health strategies along with following the child's lead it's like okay we can follow your lead and you you want to draw but maybe we can draw about um your feelings you know let's you know uh, what do you think about this facial expression or what are your thoughts about that have you ever felt this way um you know how can you get from this feeling we drew here to this feeling here what are some of the things we can you know draw in between here and here to get there so still following their lead but a little bit more of a mental health twist Mm -hmm. so yeah so how did you get interested in dir well let's see um I have always been interested in the attachment-based models. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been something so fascinating to me um, ever since graduate school. And so when all of a sudden, when I joined the clinic that I was working for, um, I did my internship there, and I was introduced to this model, and it just clicked with me. I said, wow, like, you know, there's measurable, well, measurable. <laughs> <laughs> and in air quotes. <laughs> yeah. I love how we all laughed at that one. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. We understand. Yes. Yeah. It's fine. Yes. yes. It's, it's sort of like, you know, Subjective. made sense of see, mm-hmm. something so abstract. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what really drew me into that area. Mm-hmm. What drew you into mental health? Oh, yes. Yes, I'm also into mental health. Yeah. So uh-huh. what, what drew you to go towards that, oh, towards just in your life in general? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well... <laughs> 
it's funny in graduate school or undergrad I dappled a little bit I said you know I want to be you know a biologist and I I love the science so I studied biology and I decided I said you know what I, I really want to help people how can I really help people and influence the community mm-hmm. and so um, after taking a psychology course I said this is it mm-hmm. it just clicked with me undergrad and um, from that day forward, I said, this is what I will commit my life to, mm. helping people, giving back to the community, making a difference where I can. Good for you. Awesome. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. Um, I, the, uh, you, I know you're interested in the Straight Talk program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so um, the Straight Talk program is a program that I'm part of. Um, I do some volunteer work with them. Um, it is a nonprofit organization ran by Phyllis McNeil, who is amazing. Um, she is definitely very involved in the community. It's so much volunteer work. She is incredible. But it's a program that's dedicated to reducing the crime and incarceration um, rate by promoting like support and outreach. And um, they they basically have like speakers, a panel of speakers to talk to the youth at risk youth typically um, to kind of you know turn them in the right direction towards being able to be um, you know seek the help that they need and strive towards greater things in life and um, like shift out of the the uh, lifestyle that they're stuck in a little bit and and um, give them a little more direction and Mm -hmm. coping skills things like that what about Save Our Sons? Save Our Sons is a little bit like Straight Talk, um, except it's a little bit more geared towards the parents, I feel, mm-hmm. whereas Straight Talk is geared towards the at-risk youth. Mm-hmm. And the um, Save Our Sons is a little bit more for the parents, where they come together um, once a month, and they sort of talk about, okay, what steps can we take, what things can we do to better influence our community, to, to um, work a little harder at... Um, getting mental health services out into the community because we see that we'll establish, you know, an organization or a nonprofit clinic or some type of area of support and we sort of sit there and we wait. Right. And we wait. (laughs) And we wait. We put on our, our, you know, nice jackets and we wait. (laughs) And we wait. And they're not really seeking, you know, the resources when they're made there, when they're made to be available, um, sometimes you know the community's not seeking the support they need. So this forum is is a little bit more. They dig deeper. Yeah. What's going on? Why? Um, what steps can we take to be a better influence to where they are seeking the services? So, yes, you know, great programs. Mm-hmm. That's a good point about seeking. Yeah. Uh, what What do you notice? within the community that you interface with that all of us could do to help people to seek out services? Where do you oh see, like, boy. the foundational issue? Like, is it is it family education and knowing what they're dealing with in terms of neurodevelopment? Mm. And then the stigmas that are attached with those? I, mm. I imagine it's, it's multi-level, but right, right. I'd be curious about your insights. Absolutely. I um, definitely think think that it's about the psychoeducation, you know, having them understand and have a better... Pre- oh, and I'm an African-American... Because <laughs> it's a That's podcast. Right. Yeah. They can't see you. No one can see us, right? Yeah. By yeah. the way... <laughs> yeah, I should have led with that. That's you really get my notes together. <laughs> so, Okay. I am yes, yes, African-American female uh-huh. therapist, and um, definitely, I, I so I know it from both ends. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so um, you know, I think that, you know, the psychoeducation for sure is a big influence. Um, you know, getting more information, even something as simple as a brochure, mm-hmm. like, you know, or, um, I don't know, some access to YouTube videos that more um, specifically explain what are some of the key characteristics of more mental health challenges or um, things that um, may be red flags that the parents aren't really attuned to. Um, It's that, and I also believe in, um, I 
think that a lot of our energy, our resources um, are going into being more reactive rather than proactive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I think that like the Straight Talk program and the Save Our Sons program who are a little bit more like, okay, let's try to find these kids before they are these right. kids. Right, right, you know? right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, and finding ways to influence them in that, in that way early on. Well, and I was wondering about that when you were talking about Straight Talk earlier. How are the children, you know, or teenagers identified for that program? Like you mentioned at risk. So what... What does that look like? Well, some a lot of the times those kids are um, they had run-ins with the law, so uh -huh. like maybe they got caught with uh, like misdemeanor mm -hmm. offenses. I don't even know if it's considered a misdemeanor when you're a minor, but um, you know, you know, slap on the wrist type offenses, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they're put in a program as part of their. Um, um, like uh, they're part of their like renewing their record or um, kind of like cleaning their record yeah, right. or improving um, where they are <laughs> through this program so that's how they they're placed in that way because one of the things I've always struggled with and years ago I worked at Augustus Hawkins mental health clinic and worked with a similar program where I worked with you know young men and teenagers who were identified at, at risk, mm -hmm. which for that program meant that they'd already had run-ins with the law, and always struggled. Technically, is that at risk? Right. I mean, that, that's always been my, <laughs> yeah. my kind of thing. Is yeah. like really because to me that's already like past at risk. Right. So like thinking about what can we look at earlier than that? Exactly. Like from my perspective, wouldn't it be better if we could intervene before? Right, because like in my view, that's like, like at risk was before you got arrested, right? right? Absolutely. And so, you know, and and I don't even know what that looked like, but but just in my head, like this notion of how do we get to kids before that point? Right. right. You know? Well, and it's access to services possible? too. I mean, oh, certainly you and I do school district assessments, right. and so many of the African American kids I see should have been identified with having neurodevelopmental challenges long time ago Absolutely. and didn't Absolutely. and were considered you know quote unquote behavioral problems mm -hmm. right? right um and if that identification of having kind of early neurodevelopmental mm -hmm. issues had happened then maybe some later issues could have been prevented mm -hmm. or absolutely and i think that um that question it sort of brings us back to the you know intersectionality you know maybe that would be the area that we can target as far as to who is at risk for being at risk right right, <laughs> right. you know so um, because that influence that's a huge influence on how they're experiencing their world and segregation and um, that would be a key component and the program um, that I went to a meeting recently. They're the African American Family Wellness Group um, down in Riverside. They talk about this a lot, and so they do things. They they saw that there were pockets of the community that were not being um, reached out to or are um, being supported for for anything really. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say mental health, but um, just in general, in general, mm -hmm. just having a, a extra layer of support. Um, more than just you know te the teacher and more right. than just the classroom setting but um, being able to be influenced in other ways positively um, and these are like lower income communities um, so they go out into the community and they do things like yoga classes they have um, karate or I should say maybe martial arts classes for um, these kids that are um, a little bit more at risk because they're not the traditional um, Caucasian male, upper class, educated, you know, right. able-bodied, right. you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, they try to influence them how they can. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think it also speaks to the importance, too, of um, sort of <laughs> recruiting uh, African American and people of color into the service provider arena, mm -hmm. right? And having, uh, having more, because again, like, having a, a white lady just 
show up in a community to be like, okay, now I'm going to show, I'm going to yeah. show y'all how to have good mental health. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that's a huge, right? yeah, that's a huge part. You know, it's so funny because I mean, they always say, they say, um, you know, there's not enough people of color in the helping field. So how could we ever really be a true impact or a true, a true influence on the, you know, the community of color? How can we do that? So um, one of the psychologists at one of the meetings that I attended, he said, um, he was an African-American uh, psychologist, and he said, you know, because I'm African-American, I'm booked. I have right. caseloads to the ceiling, and, you know, it's very hard for me when someone comes in and they're saying, you know, I'm having all these, you know, challenges and, you know, maybe, maybe I can talk to you. Maybe I can commit, commit to coming once a week to, you know, talk about these um, issues that I'm having. And then he said, he'll have to say, great. Okay. I'm booked, but let me hook you up with, you know, this therapist who is also African-American and then they never follow up because he said that, um, the, the person or the people they'll reach out to me specifically but because my caseload is so full and I have to send them elsewhere I broke the barrier of opportunity yes to, for them to receive the services that they were seeking and now there's no telling when they will ever come seek. back yeah. right uh, I know yeah oh so frustrating I know no, it is. It's a huge problem, and it's, you know, one of the things that I talk about with mental health professionals when I'm training is differences in how we identify problems, mm. right? Mm. If you are a white boy, you have attention deficit disorder, you may get identified on the spectrum. If you are a child of color who's male, you probably have oppositional defiant disorder, right? right? right. And right. it's like, and if we didn't know what you looked like, we probably would have diagnosed you with ADD or spectrum. Right. Yeah. But that difference, and I think important for mental health providers to know that mm -hmm. and not just assume that because a child's been identified as oppositional defiant disorder, whatever the hell that is, and don't get me started. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the diagnosis like, none of us yeah, ever yeah, use. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> but like, if you don't know to take that with a grain of salt and dig deeper, you know, all the children that are then being mis you know, misdiagnosed and then mis, you know, treated. Okay. Well, um, this is, I think, one reason why um, having an intersectional approach to training is so important, so that at least um, for those of us who are sort of within the dominant cultures um, are made more aware of implicit bias, right. yeah. um, that there's at least a greater chance of of doing cross-cultural work less incompetently right um to the extent that there are real numbers problems in terms of availability for 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 intervention mm. right then at least if we can train dominant culture people to have a bit more of a clue mm -hmm. about themselves ourselves oh, absolutely. um we will at least be you know doing some harm reduction in terms of going going out and trying to you know quote unquote provide services in a way that makes people run screaming the other direction. <laughs> um. mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Um, and I remember uh, learning that uh, I mean, African American population they seek services from African American care providers, um, you know, mental health um, psychologists, things like that, but now or I guess always <laughs> there's so few available so um, that's just a huge component and another another piece that I, I think I mentioned to you the other day when we were kind of prepping about this was that the the reaching out also within the religious um, aspects of right, the community, faith communities faith mm -hmm. communities that's yeah and 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 trying to use that as a really great access point for mm -hmm. education do you have any Oh boy. Insight on that one. <laughs> Something so interesting um, in the uh, African American Family Wellness Group. Um, someone spoke about this, and he said that uh, it's a little hard. I guess maybe he made attempts to to be in connection with the uh, like religious 
um, segues to influencing the African-American community. And he said that the response that he received was a little more like, um, I have one hour to get these people to hear my message uh-huh. from, you know, the right. pastors. Right, right. I come here, I work all week to deliver my message to these right. people. <laughs> right. So, um, as far as to, I, I'm not sure. I'm sure it would be supported if it was like, you know, a little bit more like strategically organized, yeah. like a yep. plan. Um, mm-hmm. If a plan was devised to, to find a way to, you know, support the community. Like a table the- outside. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like something like as simple. At the after, you know, after I'm church. Just, like, right. I'm just yeah, thinking of like All Saints, together. right? Yeah. Like, like right. Um, and how their tables right. set up and right. different community things that, that right. you can do. Um, I mean, there's probably some more indirect ways. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that trying to get a pastor to mention mental health in a sermon is going to work, but maybe... <laughs> mm-hmm. No, but a partnership. Right. Because, because right. I do think that a lot of people of color go to their faith-based organizations mm-hmm. for mental health services when they're feeling a lot and there's things not going right in life. Mm-hmm. They, they go there for support. Right. So to allow for that partnership with a mental health professional, I think, would be a really great access point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And finding a way, I guess, the funding, but something as simple as a table yeah. shouldn't be too costly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> one would, one Go would to Costco, get a table. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what were you saying, Jamie? Sorry. I was going to say, tables aren't that expensive. No, no. Right. Right. right, right. But I think what we're all kind of hitting on here, too, is just the idea of being able to find access points to education and to, um, I think, reducing... Um, I don't know if stigma is the right word or a bias or whatever because mm-hmm. I do think it's really scary for any parent to hear that their child has a neurodevelopmental difference regardless. Right. Of course. But that there are differences within cultures about how that information is understood or received is is important to know. Right. Um, because as you're saying, you know, if, if you're going to have an African-American family have a white woman or white man, you know, come and tell them, oh, your child is autistic, Mm -hmm. it's not going to sit and be held in the same way. Right. So how to... And also things about about how do you manage discipline, how do you manage... Oh, absolutely. That's a big one. I mean, those are, are, they're, you know, huge. They're individual differences, Mm -hmm. they're cultural differences, Mm -hmm. and um, again, in terms of that sort of matrix of of areas of understanding and access... Mm -hmm. Um, the the more differences there are between the the service provider mm-hmm. and the people who are receiving the mm-hmm. services, the more difficulty there is in having it be effective. Right. Yeah, and that and that support through the process of okay, this looks like he's not paying attention right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's not what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, to better understand the foundational, like what we talk a lot about, is the movement piece of it. Right. Right. And I find that the movement piece can be a really more easily digested mm-hmm. observation. Right. Because if it gets too abstract, right. it becomes a little... Well, um, this is where... I'm um, sorry to, to interrupt Yeah, no, you, please interrupt but, you. But I was just thinking, this is, this is where um, DIR has some advantages over more, for example, ABA, mm-hmm. where um, ABA has this very rigid idea of, quote-unquote, behavior as communication, Right, except there's a huge amount of projecting on ter- in terms of what what somebody's behavior and interpretation. Means, correct. Yeah. Right. Um, so, I think what a lot of, of people also kind of fail to understand are the cultural biases in terms of the meanings we give mm-hmm. to behaviors that we see and movement differences that we see. Um, and w- the nice thing about DIR in comparison, I mean, you know, we can talk about behavioral, you know, behavioral interventions versus right. ABA right. per se. Right. Um, but, We're going to have to do a podcast but, on that one, by the way. Yeah, yeah I think so. Because I think it can get kind of triggery for people if we say, oh, we don't do ABA, but what is behavior all right? Right. So, to kind of distinguish between the two. Right, so anyways. Because, because behavior matters, right? It but, does. But how, we, how we're interpreting behavior, you know, especially when, when people are not using language, right. spoken language to communicate, right? Um, you know, but then we're having to make some 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 determinations in terms of the behavior. Is it is the behavior even meant to communicate something in that moment? 
right? Well, and I or think not. Helping people, you know, because I think you're right. Part of what happens is behavior gets interpreted in differing ways. I mean, obviously, right? right? So, you know, as an example, I've got a number of kiddos I work with who chew their fingers. Mm-hmm. And their parents are like, oh my God, it's anxiety. And I'm like, no, they're stimming. Mm-hmm. And, right? And, you know, I've, I've got a supply of pencil toppers that people can chew on that I frequently give to kids. And it's like, okay, I, I would prefer that you chew on this so that you don't make yourself bloody. Um, and even things as simple as that. And how do mm-hmm. they get interpreted, right? And a kid who cannot control their body and, you know, a parent or a school more likely who's going, oh, they're being oppositional and, right. you know, they're trying to annoy me. Like, no, they can't control their body. Those are differing right. things. Right. And helping people understand those differences. Yeah. Um, in a way that doesn't feel like, you know, here I am, the white woman, telling you what your kids are really doing. Right. Right. right? And it's it's tricky. Right. It's a huge piece of it. Right. Anyways, what were you going to say, Sheena? Well... But I, I may be sending us in a different direction a little bit. That's but okay. We never go in different directions <laughs> down here. <laughs> You're so focused. <laughs> so um, that was another good point, something that I'll be discussing in my book, too, about um, the, the schools, the uh, teachers. Uh, oh, wow. Oh, I yeah. have seen. Oh, I was just thinking of that, actually. I was thinking about, you know, a a white teacher, right? A white teacher seeing the same behavior in two different kids. And, oh, what, how are there differences? Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, in the lower income communities and, um, you know, children of color, maybe it would be, you know, worth looking at to see if maybe the parents will receive some of this um, information about, you know, maybe mental health or, you know, maybe something else is going on with little Johnny. Maybe, you know, we can look into this a little more because it, it's already a previously established relationship between the parent and the teacher. Maybe it's not always really good and sunshiny, but maybe on, on the same end, it could be, uh, you know, a little less, um, you know, abrasive. Yeah. Um, it, it's a It's an access point that is potentially excellent absolutely but in practice not always exactly well because it's back to you know it's back to the world according to Jamie and people would be educated better I mean so many teachers don't understand exactly. neurodevelopmental issues right. and neurodiversity and don't understand you know and don't have access maybe to the number of studies that have been done that show if you take two children who are doing the exact same thing and one of them is a child of color, mm-hmm. the problems get identified differently. Right. And the child of color is a behavior problem. Right. And the white kid is just having a bad day, right? Boys right. will be boys. Boys will be boys. Uh, oh, <laughs> you hear that all the time. All the time. Yes. He's, you know, a boy. He's, yeah. a boy. He's a boy. He's a boy. He's a boy. He's a 50-year-old boy, right? <laughs> but... But if you're black and you're 12, <laughs> then you're a man. <laughs> well, you're, you're a man and let's call right. the police. Right. 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 It's right. not rather than like maybe the counselor. Like, right. I don't know, maybe. Like, yeah. Like yeah. maybe increasing the psychoeducation for the teachers because yeah. boy, oh boy. Oh, man. Um, well, and the, you know, the la- and, you know, and I get it. I mean, teachers have a lot to learn about teaching. Right. I understand that. Right. And I understand they're overworked and underpaid. Mm-hmm. But they really aren't educated about neurodiversity. Absolutely. And they really don't understand attentional problems and spectrum. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. how many teachers have we all talked to that are just like, I just wish they'd pay attention. Right. Like, well, if they could pay attention, they wouldn't have ADD. Like, yeah, right, yeah, like, yeah. Right? Listen the first time. That's my favorite one. Right. Oh, they were good listeners today. <laughs> well, I think teachers, what you're hitting on too, Jamie, is that teachers would be more effective if they did. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? It really, I mean, it takes work to, to get the training to understand it, but the outcome is that the children learn better and more effectively because of that. Right. And they're the, I mean, when we when we had um, Elizabeth on, uh, the educational therapist, we were speaking a lot about the stress of school yeah. and the emotional component that comes into that. And if you have stressors that are getting activated before you even step on campus, the way you learn and the way that you interface is going to be jeopardized and, and different. Right. Absolutely. Right. Well, and if you go to a school in a low-income neighborhood that has a metal detector at the right. front door... You know, 
armed right. officers walking around. Mm-hmm. Like fear based. Fear yeah. I mean like when I visit schools like that, I'm on edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like I'm constantly thinking, Oh my god, if I actually had to try to learn in an environment like this, like I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Like no way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think to pretend that that doesn't have an impact doesn't make sense to me. Right. But I have recently been struck with the amount of pretending that goes on in this country. Really? So, <laughs> um, so Shina, Shina, you think of people that have been yeah. triggered lately. Yeah. <laughs> Shina, you mentioned a book. Yeah, I heard so that. I didn't maybe know you, you were can tell us about that. <laughs> well, I am in the preliminary stages of a book. Um, basically, uh, I, I want to look a little closer at, uh, like I said earlier, being more proactive rather than reactive and the strategies and tools we can implement every day, uh, you know, at maybe the, um, the teachers can do at school or the parents can do at home on a day-to-day basis. How can we shape these kids towards having um, better coping skills and a better ability to use their words to communicate their needs and their wants and in a more effective way, recognizing when they need a break to, you know, kind of, you know, um, regather their thoughts and being able to have more reflective thinking. Like, how could I have handled that in a better way to where the outcome would have been, you know, more pleasant? Um, things like that. I feel like there's, uh, you can implement mental health um characteristics and strategies in everyday parenting yeah and I don't think people really are aware of that (laughs) and um just something I wanted to just outline like very simple basic strategies and tools and um the ideas the concept um to support um the uplifting mental health in children through your parenting style through your teaching style um so could you give us a couple examples of what that would look like? Like, what are some basic things parents of kids of different ages could be doing? Um, let's see. So uh, something that I, that or one of the things that I'll be discussing in the book um, will outline uh, different things like being able to teach your child about it's not how... Um, you, you know how you you did good you did a good job on you got an a or you you did uh, you won the game rather than focusing on how hard they worked mm-hmm. and being able to implement that into the language into your parenting style into the everyday strategies and you know talking to your kids and right. um being able to shift their attention onto how hard they work rather than right the outcome. Yeah. Outcome. Right. Yeah. right and and in Increasing like uh, attention to frustration I was tolerance, just about development, say, right? Yeah, like, tolerance, yes. Um, I was, I was uh, at a team meeting at a residential placement. This place, oh my gosh, it was not, not like any residential placement I've been at before. It was gorgeous. Um, um, talking with with them about helping this teenager figure out, you know, when, quote unquote, when they're ready to go home because they wanted it to be very concrete, you know, tell me the things that I have to check off before I can go home. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and one of the things I said is like, well, what, why don't, you know, why not like, instead of even engaging in that conversation with, with her mm-hmm. to say, well, how about next time I set a limit with you, you don't lose your stuff. Like, how about mm-hmm. you not flip out the next time I set a limit? That would be a good, that would be right. a good sense of yes. you're ready to go home. Right. Right. Yeah, you know? but that, I think what you're also speaking to is is what we talked about before about being a little bit more explicit. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that sometimes you do for certain neurologies, you do have to be more explicit. And yep. it's, it's not a lack of care or a lack of empathy. It's mm-hmm. their brain needs that kind of structure, right. right? In order to understand, not from an intellectual standpoint, but from right. a procedural standpoint of how to right. get from A to B. Well, and also in terms of differing styles too. Mm-hmm. It's like well. Um, some people really aren't into the, you know, how does that make you feel kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? They right. want, like, come on, let's That's get, right, let's. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes and me feel like I want to hit you. Yeah. And here I go. And here I go. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and so, and also the importance of, you know, because one of the, the ways kind of psychotherapy gets gets viewed sometimes is that it ends up being all about, you know, talky, talky, talky. And there's no 
do we? There's no, mm-hmm. like, wait a second, right? And so there's this idea that kids are being encouraged to just, you know, float around in the ethers instead of, like, taught how to, quote, unquote, behave, mm-hmm. right? And and part of the, the issue, again, from a neurodiversity standpoint and, you know, trying not to be shot by the police is how do you encourage somebody to have, you know, be able to manage themselves without also going down that kind of false path of respectability stuff, mm-hmm. right? Look me in the eyes. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. right. So that I think there's, you know, one of the things I don't hear people talk about enough is the um, the impact of respectability politics and how it impacts working with diverse cultures mm-hmm. in all kind of across the board. Yeah. All right. Well, I can't yeah. wait for Sheena's book. Oh, heck yeah. When's yes. it, when's it going to be uh, you done? You know, I, I'm looking to attend some more conferences and things like that. I want to see what other professionals in this area, what their thoughts are about this. And coming up, I don't see too many geared towards what I'm looking into, so I may have to do a little traveling. But or I'm do hoping... your own. Do your own conference. That would be great. We'll that come. is something. Okay. You, you guys will come. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That'd be fun. Okay, for sure. So, just tell us when that is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good point. Okay, I'll look into that for sure. But um, I'm probably this time next year. Yeah, October, November ish is what I'm looking at. So okay. We'll, we'll just keep us posted. And we'll I put will. the word out. Okay, I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming, Gina. Is there anything else you want to touch on? You know, I was wondering, um, what are your thoughts about um, the influence of, um, with the intersectionality, uh, the influence of stress hormones, um, you know, being released in these kids, or or adults, you know, or from early on, uh, how it influenced, I know there's so much research out there, but I'm wondering what are your thoughts about how it influenced, um, you know, everyday functioning and their ability to move up into a level of functionality that is, um, you know, um, where they can be able to live lives in mental health. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, yeah. Trauma lady huge, over there. Well, yeah, trauma, yeah, trauma, trauma lady. Okay. Yeah, trauma lady Jamie's over the there. Trauma you know, lady. it's it's so challenging because anytime you're triggered into fight flight. Right, mm-hmm. and and we've all been there, and we know that in those states, you're not processing information. Right, and children who live in environments where they're in fight flight on a daily basis mm-hmm. aren't processing information at the same way. So they're not learning as well in school, and they become so focused on the getting by and the getting through that they can't even really think beyond. Right, right, and the more you have you know stress hormones or, or whatever flooding through your body at an early stage the easier it's going to be to get back into those states right it becomes right. familiar it right. becomes familiar and it becomes just you know the way that you are um you know which is part of why i get so you know just annoyed that's me being nice offended by people who think it's obnoxious to do trigger warnings. Right. I'm like, well, when you know that you're presenting information to a group of people that's more likely to go into fight flight than other people, that's the kind human thing to do. Right. Right. Well, because and it also, it yeah, it speaks also to sort of having to come at it from multiple directions because there's the, the, the systemic issues in terms of resources mm-hmm. and the fact mm-hmm. that we have entire communities that are that have limited resources in the richest country in the world, mm-hmm. right? So we've got neighborhoods uh, with children who are being basically placed into fight flight right. constantly, yeah, who right. are drinking water with lead in it, mm-hmm. who are, right? So mm-hmm. this is, I mean, When's that's, my next meal coming? Right, right. right. So Absolutely. so the fact that, that, that we aren't doing more um, on a large scale, right. You know, area with that is one thing, mm-hmm. um, but then there's the the piece of okay, you know, this is the reality that, that many people live in. Right. What what can we do, um, given the current givens, and in the hopes that that will change at some point? Although, um, we'll see, uh, right? But how do yeah. we then kind of support resilience mm-hmm. in people right. who are living in environments that are 
that are deeply damaging to them, right? right? And um, but this is kind of why uh, I tend to keep going back to sensory motor right. approaches right. and kind of bottom up training yes. and self regulatory training right. because. You know, again, you can try to teach cognitive strategies and, and coping techniques, you know, all day long. Mm-hmm. Not with but when somebody's, you know, having, no. when somebody's hearing gunshots, and right, yeah, that, um, that, forget about that, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. I, I do think that um, that that t- taking a sensory motor approach and taking a bottom-up self-regulatory approach mm-hmm. in managing some of those things is more likely to be successful and right. in, in from a resilience perspective because I do think that you you want to try to have a resilience perspective right, right. Absolutely. Um, but but again this is where that colonial aspect comes in and why it's so important to have people of color doing the research yeah. um, and this is where um, like Alfie Breland Noble do you know her, her yeah. work uh-huh. she's so awesome yeah. um, you know that that's where her stuff comes in right and and being able to try to do some you know ground up you can address yeah and I think what you're getting at too is like you can address frustration tolerance through movement right Right. how many of us have taken a yoga class and walked out going what in the (laughs) right Right. was that so you can take these concepts and put them in the body form and find um you know, an easier way, or I don't want to say easier, but like a different approach instead right. of talking at it, right? doing right. at it. And to so find culturally think. appropriate ways of doing it, too. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, and yoga isn't going to sit with every culture. No. no. Right? Well, no. and part of what I'm so excited about your book is I think it's important to work with kids and everybody, not about the outcome. Right. 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 Not not good for you, you sat through class, mm-hmm. but what were the strategies that enabled you to do that? Absolutely. What were the strategies that enabled you to keep your body still mm-hmm. and to regulate yourself in an environment that was chaotic and mm-hmm. triggery and, and like learning how to do that? Right. Yeah. Right? Because there will always be times that are triggery and you have, but it's like, how do you learn how to do that? Well, and also it just, it speaks to, you know, one of the challenges I've, I've had with psychotherapy interventions is that there's, there's a way that, that you can sort of therapize somebody into, you know, tolerating oppression. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I, in, in my experience, it's a compliance thing and it's also, right. Like, instead of, let's figure out ways for you to fight being oppressed, mm-hmm. it's like, let's find ways for you to tolerate being oppressed. Coping skills. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, again, not that, you know, everybody needs coping skills, but I think it can also normalize oppression for people in a way right. Well, this is what I, I was is so problematic. Is that yeah. if you are in a community in which everyone is in fight or flight together, mm-hmm. nobody knows in that community what it feels like to not be in that state. No. Mm-hmm. So it's replicating itself over and over mm-hmm. and over again to where the, the, the people in that community are seeing it in everybody else. Right. And so I think that it really speaks to being able to getting them access to feeling, oh, you don't have to feel in this state all the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, you do, but let's help you not. Right. right. And, and that seeing that replication within the society and culture and the people that are constantly around it... Um, kind of goes back to what you're saying about the school, you know, the teachers uh, about the metal detector, etc. The teachers are in fight or flight too. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But this is yeah. also why in training programs for teachers and for, um, and, and again, I'm talking because, you know, spoiler alert, I'm a white lady. Um, uh, yeah, there's you know, three of like, them in this room right now. Right, so, um, but, but teaching about microaggressions. Like, I can't right. tell you right. how many white right. people I've met, white therapists I've met, who literally don't believe microaggressions exist wow. like yeah oh, that's well, really gonna be upsetting but that right. goes back to implicit bias I'm like, right. really? okay. so like this, this is shocking no so, i just but uh, but the fact that they don't believe that the term or that not the concept real. is real is, not, is yeah. not pleasant to hear well, so um but and so we i have think a problem with honesty in this country <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a problem with racism in this country yes mm-hmm. but um well that's well never yeah, but right. But. Okay, stay on focus, ladies. Okay. Right. So anyway, so so, Sheena, we could talk with you all day long. Uh-huh. Okay, and we would. I can um, come back. So you will have you. We'll have you. We'll have you, we'll have you come yeah. back. And, Absolutely. And, and, and I talk think it would be awesome more. for Sheena to partner with our sensory motor foundations to yeah. be able to, to provide Absolutely. outreach um, as we're starting to get our thoughts in order about how to 
to get that going. Um, yeah. Because it's something, obviously, that we feel strongly right. about, but we also understand we're limited. Right. right. Well, and part of our, our the whole thing with Sensory Motor Foundation is sort of applied intersectionality, mm-hmm. right? That the idea is doing. <laughs> right. Doing. Like, talking is awesome, but... Um, doing is But better. doing is, is super important. So... Um, so, so thank you so much for for joining us. Is there are there are, are there ways for people to get in touch with you? Are you on social um, media in any way, you know shape, what? or form? Yes, I am. Um, however, um, right now I'm working in private practice under my name, but I'll be establishing something a little bigger than just myself, and I'll be hiring on more therapists because I'm I have no more availability. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, to be able to provide services and. You know, talking to you ladies today really um, reinforced my idea of of finding ways to to. Um, I was thinking about, for example, coming up with with an event um, in these pockets of the community down here in LA because they're doing great things down in Riverside. Yeah. yeah. But down here in LA, we're a little bit limited. Funds are stretched a little bit tight, mm-hmm. so. Um, just finding ways to do, um, you know, n- not-for-profit um, um, activities or events or conferences um, for free for the community to attend and for these families to be able to have a little bit more access to the psychoeducation and the information so that they can be influenced positively moving forward. Um, so if you guys can let me know what your thoughts are on yeah. that in the future, I'll Absolutely. be in touch. Mm-hmm. Well, and we'll, we'll link up um, any sort of, like, for contact information. So if we get any listeners who want to email you or whatever, we, right. can, we can link yeah, up we'll your put them in email the show notes. and the show oh, okay, notes on the perfect. website. So yeah. Yeah, well, And let us know if there are any organizations you want us to highlight. Just absolutely. send us the links, and we'll put them in the show notes. And, perfect. And have okay. Them out there. My email is Sheena Henderson, S-H-E-E-N-A, Henderson, lmft at gmail.com all right you heard it here first folks okay so um thanks you all for joining us and for for listening and yes we're we're recording again on a more regular basis so yay us (laughs) so yay us so now i guess we'll do the slow fade since we continue to suck at ending yeah we do we'll do it again bye bye Bye, everyone